A recent settlement in a case between a bank and its former commercial customer over an account takeover incident dating back to 2010 could shed new legal light on how attorneys from both sides view fraud liability. From reasonable security to updated authentication standards required by the FFIEC, what lessons is the industry gradually learning about new takes on ACH and wire fraud? Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group, and I'm joined today by Julie Rogers and Kim Densel, trial attorneys with Silicon Valley Law Group, which represented Villageview Escrow in its 2011 suit against Professional Business Bank. Kim, last week Villageview announced that it had reached a settlement with Professional Business Bank in a case that revolved around a March 2010 incident of corporate account takeover that resulted in a nearly $400,000 fraud loss. Can you give our audience some background about what actually happened? To start off, Villageview is a small uh, escrow company in Southern California, and they would handle different transactions as any escrow company would on uh, primarily residential sales. So at different times, their account, which was a professional business bank, could have anywhere from half a million to, to several million dollars in the account. What happened over the course of two days is that somehow cyber thieves were able to breach their security either at the bank or at Villageview and access the Villageview account, and they drained, at that point in time, half a million dollars out in um, 26 wire transfers, and it occurred over two days. When Villageview was finally able to uh, realize what was happening, they contacted the bank, and the bank immediately put a freeze on the account. The bank then went about trying to recover the funds by contacting the financial institutions where the wire transfers had gone directly. And Michelle Marsico of Villageview actually tried to contact the individuals to get a return of the funds directly from the individuals. The way this kind of works is that the cyber thieves, who we found out later were located in Eastern Europe and the Middle East, would basically have what we call mules uh, available in the States. Mules were individuals that, for the most part, really didn't know what they were getting into. They were uh, somewhat conned into assisting with uh, a business venture, or so they thought, in, in transferring funds. So the wire transfer orders would go out to the mules. The mules would then get the money into their account and then would take the money out of that account and send them out by Western Union to locations in the Middle East and uh, Eastern Europe, where the bank was successful in getting all the financial institutions before those funds were taken out. They were able to get some funds back, and then Michelle Marsico was able to contact the individual mules and convince them also to you know, return the funds. A lot of times the mules would not know what they were doing or it actually would, these were stolen funds and they would be cooperative. Sometimes they would not be. Now, Julie, I'd like to go to you for a second. Could you give us some background and talk a little bit about the premise of the suit against Professional Business Bank? Why did Village View believe that it wasn't responsible for the fraud losses? Yeah, Tracy, the premise of all wire transfer fraud cases against financial institutions is governed by Article 4A of the Uniform Commercial Code. The Uniform Commercial Code is a federal code that's been adopted by various states, in fact, all the states, um, some verbatim, some slightly in different versions. California adopted the UCC by way of Division 11 of the California Commercial Code. So we filed an action under Division 11 of the California Commercial Code here in California on behalf of Village View Escrow. Village View Escrow contends that it did everything it was capable of doing as a small business owner to guard against the cyber fraud and that the bank was in a much better position and had access to much more information and technology and security methods to guard its funds. 
Now, the complaint filed by Village View against Professional Business Bank claims the bank was not in conformance with the FFIEC's existing standards for multi-factor authentication, nor was its security reasonable. And some of this, of course, ties into the UCC. Can you explain a little bit about the multi-factor authentication questions as well as reasonable security? Simply stated, the FFIEC indicates that the best security method that can be employed by the bank is a multi-factor security method. And what we argued is that what the bank had employed was a layered single-factor authentication as opposed to a multi-factor authentication. The bank disagreed and contended that it did, in fact, have multi-factor. This was a point of contention throughout the lawsuit up and until the case was settled. Now, let's talk about the Uniform Commercial Code. What role did the Uniform Commercial Code play in your argument on reasonable security? The UCC Article 4A has been adopted by the states in Division 11 of the California Commercial Code is what we filed under. They mirror each other. Division 11 has a two-pronged test that determines liability for financial institutions in cases of wire transfer fraud. The two-pronged test is whether or not the bank security was deemed commercially reasonable, and the second prong is whether or not the bank accepted the payment orders in good faith. So we allege two separate causes of action under those two separate prongs. Now, as you've noted, Julie, the UCC does vary from state to state, even if it is just a slight variation. Given that Village View is located in California, is there anything about the California version of the UCC that may have benefited your argument in a way that may have been difficult to argue in another state? This is kind of a new and emerging area of law, and for that reason, there's not a lot of case law out there in any state. And in California, uh, there wasn't a lot to go on. So what we did in this case is, while we filed under Division 11 of the California Commercial Code, what we did is tried to persuade the court uh, through submission of cases from other jurisdictions, as well as unpublished cases, which isn't typically done in litigation, but in this case we deemed it necessary uh, so that the court could see how other courts around the country were handling it. The court in California wasn't bound to follow the law of any unpublished decision or any out-of-state decisions, but it could consider it in its analysis, and we believed it played a role in how we proceeded in our case. Yeah, that's a great point, and it's a nice segue to my next question, which basically revolves around the fact that we don't have a lot of legal precedents to turn to when it comes to cases of ACH and wire fraud. In fact, the two leading precedents the industry often discusses involve Experimental versus Comerica Bank and Patco Construction versus Ocean Bank, Um, but both of those cases, the outcomes offered conflicting perspectives. How were those cases considered in the settlement proceedings reached between Village View and Professional Business Bank, if at all? I'll tell you, Tracy, both cases came up, and both cases were used and raised by both sides in this case. Um, So EMI had a successful recovery on behalf of the plaintiff, the, the business owner in that case, and what they were successful in is pursuing a claim under the good faith prong of the uh, Article 4A of the Uniform Commercial Code. And PATCO did not have a favorable recovery for its plaintiff, and it tried to pursue recovery under the commercial reasonableness aspect 
of the uh, Uniform Commercial Code Article 4A. So you can see that because this is a new and emerging area of law, we have inconsistent decisions. We have different jurisdictions handling almost the same, if not very similar fact patterns in different ways. And for that reason, it's really important as cases are analyzed in the future and moving forward that all the bases are covered, that all viable causes of action and even new and in creative causes of action are put before the court so that proper recovery for the proper plaintiff um, can be accomplished. Now, as part of the settlement, Village View was reimbursed all the funds that were lost. Do you think that's unique, Julie, and do you think the settlement will serve as an example for future cases? Now, I'm proud to say it is unique because one of the idiosyncrasies of the UCC and its adopted provisions by the states is that it limits recovery to the plaintiff in cases of wire transfer fraud to the actual amount lost plus interest only. So any consequential damages, any attorney's fees, and any costs are precluded under the UCC. As a result of that, Tracy, once a small business has been hit by a wire transfer fraud and they've lost, say, a half a million dollars to cyber thieves, they're not in a financial position to bankroll a lawsuit. By the UCC limiting the avenues of recovery, it makes it very untenable for a plaintiff to file a lawsuit against a bank, which is much better equipped to handle lawsuits. In our case, we had an amazing client who was willing to put in the time and the effort and work right alongside with us as we pursued the bank. We had some creative strategies that worked to our advantage in this case, and we were able to recover not only what was actually lost plus interest, but then some extra on top of that. So it is a unique case, and we're hoping it's going to provide some incentive for other plaintiffs to come forward and have their case heard. And before we close, I'd like to ask either one of you what you'd like to share from a legal perspective about the future role FFIEC and UCC interpretations are likely to play as courts rule on these types of fraud cases. Tracy, this is Kim. I would say in kind of a a more global approach to it is I think it's really important for attorneys that are handling these types of cases to not get bogged down in simply the UCC, to try and think outside the box and be creative in their pleadings with their case. Every case has some different aspects to it, and those aspects, if they're played up correctly or developed correctly, can lead to the potential for recovery for the client that goes outside of the UCC. I'll add, Tracy, that just to distinguish the FFIEC from the UCC, the FFIEC are just uh, guidelines or recommendations, and the PACO case is a good example where the court says uh, these are good suggestions, but these aren't standards that we're going to hold banks accountable to. Meanwhile, the UCC is non-negotiable, and it is binding on everyone. And the two prongs of commercial reasonableness and the good faith prong, those are things that are the basis for the litigation moving forward in cyber theft. And so the two shouldn't be confused and should be distinguished accordingly. One's a recommendation and the other one's the law. Yeah, that's a good point, Julie. Thank you. Again, we've just heard from Julie Rogers and Kim Denzel of Silicon Valley Law Group. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.